This episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast is brought to you by Candy is Dandy. It's the world's only podcast devoted entirely to reviewing candy. Each episode, they pick a different candy, give its history, and then taste and review it live on air. They've done an episode on Snickers and found out it was named after a horse. They did one on Butterfingers, and that has a connection to the atomic bomb. Uh, they did way too many peach rings, too, as well, uh, with Comedy Bang Bang's Carl Tart. So if you love candy, th- you're going to love this show. This is a show for you. You can find Candy is Dandy, the candy review podcast, on any podcast platform, wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Chef Jeff Harris, who's the owner and executive chef of Nolia in Cincinnati, Ohio. Jeff was actually named a finalist for a James Beard Award this year. There's a handful of other chefs from the Cincinnati area that were nominated. I think a couple have moved into the finalist category. Uh, There's some restaurants too as well. We had one here in Columbus, one nomination, and then I think there was like two or three out of Cleveland. Pretty good year for Ohio in terms of the nominations for James Beard Awards, but a really good year for Cincinnati and Cincinnati chefs. And Nolia took over the former space that was pleased, which was 2019's best restaurant in Cincinnati uh, before it closed uh, because of COVID and some stuff like that. Jeff took over that space, rebranded it, redid it, you know, and we kind of get into chatting about how that went and kind of the expectations of the public when you take over a, a space that was formerly the home of, you know, the best restaurant in the city and what all goes into that. I wanted to have Jeff on just because we were actually scheduled to go to his restaurant, Nolia, in February when we were going to be down there for a trip. Uh, we had to cancel some stuff due to the situation with the Airbnb that dragged on and everything. So we had to leave pretty much immediately after we checked into the Airbnb. It's just long story. It's a ship platform. So we had to cancel a bunch of stuff that we had scheduled. So we're kind of spreading it out now and just kind of doing one-off stuff, uh, making our way back down to Cincinnati when we can, when we have some time and, and checking out everything that we wanted to check out before. But it's a super unique concept, Nolia, in just that it's Southern food, but it's also New Orleans food. And there's nothing really like that in Cincinnati. There's nothing really like that in Ohio, true, authentic, you know, New Orleans style food. There's interpretations of it. We've had a few things here or there, and a few people have popped up doing, you know, Southern kitchens and stuff like that. But there's nothing like Jeff is kind of doing. And he has a super fascinating story. He was in New Orleans. He lived there, you know, kind of grew up there in Louisiana, was there for Hurricane Katrina. We talk about that his experience too as well. I think that's one of the things that people forget that happened with everything that's happened since, you know, 2009-11, the financial crisis, COVID. But I think we all kind of forget that Katrina happened too uh, in 2005. We chat about that, you know, his experience, how that led to him coming to Cincinnati, you know, even going back um, after and what his experience was with that and trying to, you know, work in New Orleans again and thinking about maybe opening a restaurant down there and how he wound up back in Cincinnati for a second time and opening up here. So, and also, you know, previous concepts that he was working on too as well and getting kind of right to the finish line with that. And then COVID kind of wipes it out. It's a pretty interesting story, pretty fascinating story. And just the perseverance and resilience that Jeff had to go through just not with his personal life, you know, with Katrina and everything, but also just on the business side of thing of, you know, not being able to control stuff, you know, COVID happens and shuts down the place that you were supposed to open, you know, your restaurant concept and everything too, as well. So you can follow him on Instagram. His handle is at Jeff Chefs, and you can also follow the restaurant at Nolia Cincinnati.
is the handle for them. You can follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. We're on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, all that other stuff, either SpoonMob or SpoonMob1. But mainly we use Instagram, so follow us there. Everything else kind of feeds out into all those other social media apps. Check out our website, SpoonMob.com. We have different chef profiles. We keep them updated for any news uh, that comes out, whether they open a new restaurant, change restaurants, whatever, since they were on the podcast. So we keep all the pages up to date. We're constantly uploading new photos from all the businesses that people have, you know, that they come on the podcast and then they eventually make their way to Instagram, but uh, they hit the website first. So if you're always, you know, looking to see kind of if there's a new menu out and probably have photos up for it and you can kind of check out firsthand instead of going through like Yelp or something that the food photos are going to be kind of crappy. You can also write in questions, comments, feedback uh, to as well up there on the contact portal on the website or directly spoonmob at yahoo.com is how you can reach us. Uh, we'll get back to you in a day or two if you shoot over an email or whatever. But you can also submit in you know, a question uh, that you ever wanted to ask a chef or sommelier, restaurant owner. We'll integrate that into the episode with one of the upcoming guests and I'll let you know when that's coming out so you can kind of be part of the podcast if that's something that you're interested in doing. Uh, links to all the episodes are up on the website, but you can also find us on any podcast app. Uh, make sure to follow, subscribe to us so all the new episodes just hit your feed as soon as they come out. Thursdays, 1 a.m., brand new episodes, new interviews. Tuesdays, 1 a.m. is the mini updates. Right now, those are every other week, but they're kind of just sporadic when we ever have them recorded and everything, we'll release them out. Those are usually kind of 15 to 20, 30 minutes. And then the new episodes are the long form, which could be anywhere from an hour to two and a half hours. It just kind of depends. We don't really set a time for those. We just kind of go until somebody has to stop or we run out of questions to ask the person. Just because I'm a big fan of the long form conversation format. I think that's just the best way to get context and detail and allow people to speak and say what they want to without kind of trying to condense everything into this small prepackaged kind of box where... You know, they might mention something and it's like, oh, that was kind of an interesting tidbit, but nobody really knew what exactly the backstory was for that. So that's kind of what we aim to do here. But without any further delays, here's my conversation with Chef Jeff Harris, the executive chef and owner of Nolia in Cincinnati, Ohio. Thanks again for taking some time out of your day off, come on the podcast here and chat a little bit about your career. Nolia is a place that we were supposed to go when we were down in Cincinnati, but uh, we had an issue with our Airbnb. So unfortunately, we weren't able to make it. Your restaurant is pretty interesting in the fact that it's super different from anything that kind of really exists in Cincinnati. So I want to get into Nolia and, and everything um, that you got going on with it. Obviously, I recently got nominated for a James Beard Award too as well. But before I kind of get into all that stuff, I always like to start at the beginning with everyone. How did you kind of first get involved with cooking and restaurants and everything? I mean, you're originally from New Orleans, right? It was my great grandmother, my grandmother, and my mom. Those are the three people who kind of got me into the great grandmother. She taught me how to scramble eggs. One of the reasons for her teaching me how to scramble eggs at like four years old was she said, if I meet a wife who can't cook, then I could feed myself. That was her thing. But also my grandmother, she cooked for the church. She cooked for various other people. And then her daughter, my grandmother, my grandmother, she, she was the neighborhood food supply, basically. You want a hot meal, my grandmother would sell meals out of her plate. But my mom, she worked in restaurants. And so like I worked alongside my mom. I think uh, when I was 14, it's kind of started my professional career. I was a fry cook at a restaurant called Garfield. It all went down from there. Were you actually 14 at that time? Like of legal working age? No, nah, I don't know about how legal that was, but my mom knew the managers and, you know, um, I guess they was in need. So 
My mom said my son can do this. Called me in. And I'll never forget, I was making like five twenty-eight an hour. Excited because I just got a job working at Ben and Jerry's on the weekend and just scooping ice cream. So I was like, all right, I got two jobs right off the rip. So I was all excited because not too many people my age is working two jobs, you know? So I had two jobs and that was it. But I, cooking one always was my thing. Like I always watched culinary TV and looked at what people were cooking compared to what I was eating, like weekly, daily, and so on and so forth, and how different that was. And I was like, all right. And I asked my mom, like, why we don't cook stuff like that? She'd be like, oh, boy, that's the expensive stuff or whatever, blah, blah, blah. But she never, like, knew, like, how in-depth I was about, like, everything. And eat rabbit, quail, like, I ain't never heard of that. Like, you know, people eating that, bro. I was always intrigued. Now, working in the same restaurant as your mom, did you have to kind of convince her to let you work there? Or how did that dynamic play out? Good and bad, like, you know, obviously, you know, your mom's there, so you could spend, you know, quality time with her. But at the same time, she could be a little bit harder on you than everybody else because, you know, you are her son. The perks of that was, like, she worked in the morning and I worked in the evening. I didn't have to work with her as much, except for, like, Saturdays. Like, Saturdays, like, we both would be in there all day. And uh, and because it was in the mall, so I didn't mind because I knew like when I take a break, I can go walk around, look at girls and do all that type of stuff. But I knew like on Saturdays, I'll just be like, all right, mom, whatever time you leave, I'm leaving. And I left and we'll get there about like 10 o'clock and she'll set me up on prep and what I got to get going and how to set the line and, and all the other cooks start coming in. And that was kind of my introduction, working with my mom. But no, nah, I, I didn't have to separate mom. and the worker mom, like, you know, I didn't have to separate. She just didn't want me to call her mom at work. That's it. So at the same time, like you mentioned, you're working at Ben and Jerry's. What was the best selling flavor that you had? You know, scoop of ice cream. Jerry Garcia. My favorite was chocolate chip cookie dough. And that was the first time I ever had that. And I was like, it's probably the best ice cream I ever made, like right here. Um, my right arm really got thrown <laughs> working in that zoo in the Superdome for Saints game. I was like, man, this ice cream is like seriously hard. But I learned the trick with the hot water and scooping the ice cream to make quicker uh, moves and stuff like that. My right arm was was getting a little buff. So you're working, you know, both these places for a while. You're in the industry, kind of getting your start and everything. Did you have a moment that you knew like that's what you wanted to do? Like you wanted to be in restaurants, be a professional chef, open your own place one day. Was there that singular moment for you? Garfield's was that place. So that was the first, like I said, professional kitchen I was working in. I'm working in fry stage. So I'm doing like the French fries, the chicken tenders, the onion rings, and the Monte Cristo sandwiches that we used to fry and stuff like that. So I would always look at the guy working the grill and saute. And the guy that worked grill and saute, he also did the stylist too because he was just that good. His name was Montrell. And I would always be like, why don't you show me how to work the grill? Like, he was like, all right, you, you slow down there, come down here. And, you know, he show me how to put grill marks on the steaks and the burgers and the chicken breasts. And when I send uh, chicken tenders down there for the salad that we had, like, he'll show me how to organize salads and how to make sure that I'm putting up the salads in the right time. And, you know, how I'm coordinating myself with everybody else. And so he was kind of like my first, like, teacher. And... Eventually, like, so, like, I worked there for, like, four years, so I eventually became, like, kitchen manager, and so by the time I became kitchen manager, I can, like, operate the whole kitchen at, like, 18, and so 
I was just like, all right, let me let me kind of indulge in this a little bit more because like the stuff we were doing was really like simple. It was almost like an Applebee's type of place. And I was like, all right, cool. And once that place closed, that's when I was like, all right, what's next? Like so, that's when I started. Like I knew like majority of the restaurants were in like the French Quarter or uptown in New Orleans, and so I just started filling out applications, man. And the first place that that hired me outside of uh, Garfield's um, was a uh, this place called uh, Pappy's Seafood. It was like steak and seafood. That was the first restaurant that wasn't like a corporate restaurant. And you know, we did like some really good food. I learned like how to make like simple sauces, and you know, like the the whole art of like making the plate look good. Every plate has to look like this, and so on and so forth. That's when um, I started like pursuing like a higher level i mean but i've worked in other places like house of blues and i worked at this place called the palace on canal street and you know like just just trying to you know find my way and so once i saw that emeralds were hiring and so emeralds was like my came say like that was like idol in the city because of one who he was and who he was as a tv chef and so i was intrigued and so like when i went to go fill out the application one i was shocked that they called me back two and they interviewed me and they told me when I was going to start. Like, I think that's probably when I went sat in my car and I was like, I can't believe I'm out of work here. Like, you know, and, and about to take on what's all coming from that. But also at that time, I was a little bit of an arrogant line cook. I figured I can work anywhere, be the best line cook anywhere, not knowing that what all comes with being in a real professional kitchen, what all entails besides just being a good line cook. So when I got to Emerald, that's when I got humbled. It's like, all right, just sit down with him and show you how it's done for real. And yeah, so that was it. Now, a lot of celebrity chefs, I mean, they have restaurants. A lot of it is just their names on kind of the window, the marquee or whatever. But Emerald, like, even though he had multiple kind of restaurants and locations, he had stuff in like Disney and whatnot. But that was actually like his restaurant. Like he was actually there all the time. So did that make a difference for you guys, everybody in the kitchen, knowing that, hey, we're actually working for this celebrity chef? You know, but he's here every night, night in and night out, just like we are. His mom and dad stayed above the restaurant. His dad would open the restaurant every day. His mom would come in occasionally and like sometimes she'll bring like something for staff meal or something like that, you know, for everybody. But Emerald, I don't know how often he stayed upstairs, but you would never know when he's coming in. When he did come in, I mean, he came in off. Like, you know, it wasn't like, like he was away from his restaurants and just because of who he was, like he did come in and when he came in, talked to everybody, he knew everybody by their first and last name. He knew like everything about it. like he'd come in, touch you on your elbow while you're on the stage and then be like, Hey, what's what's new, chef? What are we doing? Of course, some sometimes, you know, that first after that first couple of times, you like, That's E, man. He he's talking to me right now. Like, you know, so we had those moments, but after a while of after my first year working there, like it was kind of normal. Then you start being like, hey, I'm going to need you. We're going to do TV. We're going to do the morning show here. We're going to do this. I need you to start prepping up all this stuff for me and get all this stuff done. So I took that job, like, literally, like, seriously. So on top of all my other duties that I knew I, I felt like I was being, like, a part of something. The five years I was there, I mean, I really enjoyed every minute of it. I think that's when, because that was one, that was my culinary school, too. That when I learned every facet of the kitchen, like work all the stations and learning sauciers, I didn't really butcher as much because we already had an in-house butcher who butchered everything for us. But we were going and learning stuff from him. It was awesome. Anytime he was in there, just don't 
if you're walking behind him, make sure you, he knows you're behind him. If not, you're not going to get the TV camera. So like you mentioned, you didn't go to culinary school. Was that something that you ever thought about doing? Or was it just because of New Orleans and the rich food culture that it has, you knew you could learn on the job going to different restaurants? Culinary school, it was always in the back of my mind because I thought that in order for you to become like chef of a restaurant, you had to have went to school or, or unless you knew the right people. But culinary school never was like, the forefront because like by the time i was 19 like i had a kid like uh you know and also uh like i'm living on my own at that point too so i was i had no way of going to school and being a dad and still working at least that's what i told my 19 year old self but at the same time some of the other chefs i started looking into like in the city like most of them never even went to school and they were running like you know successful restaurants and and being successful. So the further I got in my career, the further that culinary school disappeared, you know, started to dissipate. And so I was just like, well, the more chefs I found out that never went to culinary school just kind of made me feel like, all right, so I can do it without school. And that was it. If someone in your kitchen now came up to you and said, you know, I want to open my own restaurant one day down the road, do you think I should go to culinary school? What would you tell them? I'm going to be honest. Like, I didn't. And I'm living proof that you don't have to go to culinary school in order to be successful or open a restaurant. I mean, because they have people that never even cook that open up restaurants, people that never even worked in a restaurant the day in their life, and they open up restaurants. So, I mean, but I would be honest and let them know, like, all the hills and valleys of that process. So that, one, it won't be a surprise to them when obstacles get in their way or when they run into issues that they didn't see coming because of where you're trying to go with your ideas and your goals and your, your design of your restaurant, your menus and so on and so forth. But yeah, I wouldn't be honest. I wouldn't hold punches or make sugarcoat anything. To, well, you need to go to school because that's kind of like lying. When you're at Emeralds, I believe there's a story. I don't know if this is true or not, that you left in the middle of your shift to go get married. Is that true? Yeah. How did that wind up working out? Well, it was kind of weird because, uh, one, I knew I couldn't get that day off because it was Valentine's Day. And um, I was like, in order for this to happen, like, you know, I had to come up with some elaborate story to make my exit and make my exit worth it. And also make an exit so it won't be questioned, like, when I come the next day or something like that. And, like, I don't remember the story of what I said or anything like that, but I just knew that. When I got to work, what had to happen at what time and execute the plan. And so the justice of the peace was like probably like walking distance from where Emerald. So I didn't have to have anybody pull up or anything like that. I just had to make sure I had to leave and that it was okay with it. Now, it was during lunchtime and uh, I was, the back of my head, I was still trying to think how I'm going to pull this off and, you know, do it successfully. And, and also I had to make sure I talked to the right two chefs to get the message across, right? And so, like, this is also the time, like, with no cell phones or anything like that. So I think I had, like, a sky page or something like that. And, you know, like, you can send your messages across, right? And so I had the message, like, already set up for, like, to come across at a certain time. Then, you know, I was going to kind of delay me even reading it a little bit. And, you know, then when I did get a second to read it. Like, I went up to the sous chef. I was like, hey, chef, look, I got to go. Like, blah, blah, blah. They got this going on or whatever. And he was like, 
like right now? I was like, yeah, dude, I gotta go like right now. It's like he said, all right. He said like, um, what you got cooking on your station? I was just like, like I said, I'm working Friday day, so it's not really much. Like you know, we got garnish up for everything. You know, everything's in place. I made sure my station was super prepped, like nothing. Like and I and I was working an easy station that day, so I was like, all right. Once I was able to get out, left like one out, I couldn't believe it. And then like two, I was like, all right, now I got to do this other thing, like you know. And I, I'm going to hurt Aaron for putting that out there, too. You know, New Orleans has this big, you know, food culture, bunch of famous restaurants, Emeralds. There's a whole bunch. Commander's Palace is another one. Did you kind of think over the course of your career, you'd wind up kind of staying in New Orleans and, and working at a bunch of different places like that? Was that kind of your goal before wind up having to relocate and everything? Honestly, like I always wanted to open up something at home, like something myself. And like kind of like like what I'm doing now, like you know, like you said earlier, like you know, like like our food is different from like what everybody else is doing in the city. And because like everybody in New Orleans is doing like New Orleans food, so like I knew like I wouldn't do that. Like I wouldn't do that. Like I wouldn't do what everybody's doing because like I'm like that with my life and everything. Like I don't wear Jordans or Timberlands or anything like that because like. That's kind of like what everybody wears. Like everybody wears, like, you know, somebody that has Jordans or obsessed with them or they got to wear Timberlands or anything like that. And I don't wear or do anything that everybody else is doing. Like, if anything, I want to be the unicorn when I walk in the door or whatever. When I was in New Orleans, I had like an opportunity one time to be a chef at this lady's restaurant. And that was, I was at Emeralds and I was like 21. And this lady, she approached me, like, she she ate at Emeralds, and she approached me. She was like, hey, do you have a second to talk? Like, she gave me a number, and you know, all the things she was talking about. But honestly, I wasn't going to be making what I was making at Emeralds work for her as a chef. Like, and I wasn't even, like, sous chef at this point. And so I was like, well, I can't do that opportunity. I can't take that opportunity. You know, kind of let her down. But also, that lets me know, all right, whatever I'm doing, somebody else saw me stand out amongst everybody else for her to approach me. But yeah, like I didn't take the opportunity, but if I was going to open up something new on, there probably would be something totally different. Also familiar to everybody. I don't know what it would have been or whatever, but that was a goal. 05 happens, Katrina, right? Were you in New Orleans when Katrina happened? Where were you living at the time? I was born and raised in the Ninth Wars, um, but at the time my ex-wife, she had a friend that lived in Gretna, which is Across the river. It's like, uh, it went over there. And so, like, it was the day before Katrina, the 28th. And uh, we all went over there. Me, my stepson, my daughter, all of us went over there. And we, I mean, honestly, like, we was just watching, me and my wife were watching the show last night. She was asking me, like, what comes up when I see stuff about that. And I was just telling, like, I didn't know what kind of decisions I was making when this stuff's going on because like it happens all the time. Like hurricanes come, hurricane, this hurricane's gonna be this, this hurricane's gonna be that. Then it's all like back to normal the next day. You know, so when hurricane hit, like we was we wasn't in the house that living in. The house that I was in, like they just suffered like wind damage and like they only got like water that was like curbside high, you know, stuff like that. But we all didn't have any power. You couldn't make any cell phone calls or anything at that point but we never knew what was going on on the other side of the river i just knew we couldn't go back on that side we was all getting turned around and stuff like that so that was like insane 
it was probably the weirdest, uh, unsure point in my life. Like, cause at this point, like one, I know for sure, like once we found out what was going on on the other side, like, like we might not have a house to go back to, or like, like, so what's the next step? And so we jumped on the Greyhound and we ended up up here 25 hours later after getting on the ground, had to figure out life. Why'd you wind up here? Like Cincinnati instead of, you know, a lot of people went to Houston, different parts of Louisiana. By us being where we were, we didn't go to the Superdome or, or any of the, like the convention center where most people were during the storm. So that's where all those people went, you know? So that's how that migration from New Orleans to Houston happened. And so like for us, so it was more like, all right, so what are we going to do? Make sure that what we're doing for us is best for us. And also my ex-wife at the time, her mom lived in Burlington. We ended up here. And so once we were able to get a ticket and make sure that uh, we can get up here, we, we took that route. And it took us four hours to get somewhere that's like 45 minutes away. Got to the bus station. Once we got to the bus station, like I knew I had like two grand in my account. And we had to make do what we had. And also when I got here, the first thing I wanted to do was go back home because like, that's what I knew. That's where I was comfortable. That's where my job was, where everything, my life was done. So like, I didn't want to move up here because I had to. I, it never was a thought to move up there. Did you wind up going back at any point? Because, you know, I think the Ninth Ward was like the most damaged part of the city, right? Like a lot of people wound up taking a buyout you know, if they had any property there and, and were you able to go back or did somebody call you and was like, there's nothing you'd like here anymore? So in 2006, once it was allowing people back in the city, like, you know, come assess their properties and, you know, uh, try to see what can be done with whatever's left of your stuff. Um, so I knew like my house was not going to survive. Like we couldn't move back into our house because one, how high the water was in our house. And also, uh, just structurally, like, if we would have stayed, like, we probably would have died in that. Like, honestly, because the water was, like, nine feet in our house. And our house was built, like, two feet off the ground. So, and it was, like, probably, like, two feet from the ceiling. So, like, one, my three-year-old daughter, my ex-wife, and my stepson, like, all of us, like, me and my stepson was the only one that would have known how to swim. And also, let alone trying to keep people alive while swimming. That would have been drastic. No telling how long we could have kept that up during all that. So we did. So I took pictures and all that stuff and came back. And then 2015, I was able to go back home. So I moved back home and uh, took a job at Quarter Two Sisters. And so I was a chef down there. And I don't know. Was, I mean, I've been home plenty of times before I moved back. But like being there every day again and living there was just totally different. You know, it wasn't. You, you could feel like some of the life been sucked out of New Orleans. Like, you know, it wasn't the same. And so, like, when, when I was staying down, like, in New Orleans, and, you know, I mean, like, I had to get, <laughs> I guess, readjusted. I mean, like, culinarily, though, like, like hearing some of the names of food, like, I haven't heard in a long time because I've been up here. Like, I was like, oh, crap. Like, I haven't heard that in a long time or seen that in years or whatever. I don't know. It was just, like, it was different. And also, like, Honestly, I got kind of pissed at the little tourism thing they had going on where people would pay money to go look at the damaged properties and stuff like that because, like, like you're making money off this stuff and, like, none of this stuff is, none of the money you're making is going toward fixing this stuff up, like, you know? And uh, it was more of a novelty or an exhibit for people 
more than it was. Uh, I don't know. I thought it was just playing with people's pain, honestly. But I, was, I mean, but once my my wife, uh, me and my wife was down there, Lawrence, and her grandmother passed, and we bought her house, and we moved to the west side of Cincinnati. Came back, and I didn't want to come back, honestly. I mean, I, I just wanted to be home. I just wanted to get acclimated and also put my culinary imprint home first before I do it anywhere else. When I came back, it was I was just like, all right, if I'm going to do it. If I'm going to come back, then I really get on my own journey, work for anybody else. So the first time you're in Cincinnati, the stretch 2006 to like 2015, what do you wind up doing? Where do you wind up working over the course of that kind of decade? Hilton was my first job. Hilton Netherlands Plaza. I worked in between Orchids and the Palm Court area over there. And I did like the sous chef position at the Cincinnati, I mean, the catering department. And I worked at this place called the Queen City Club for like a year. Then I met Jose Salazar at Cincinnatian. And that's where I was like, all right, I'm following this train right here. Like, you know, this is more in line with what I want to do. Like, you're learning, you push, you're being tested daily. And that's kind of what I wanted because everywhere else is kind of like easy. It was a little bit laid back. Not saying that work to Palm Court wasn't challenging in itself, but also it was just like, it's like a robot there. So like over here, we're switching up constantly. We're changing stuff. We're making our own creations. And also like that was kind of the first time where I was like, hey, like, what do you want to do with this? Like, what can we do with this to put it on the menu or whatever, you know? That was kind of weird because, like, normally I was like chef stuff, chefs and all these did that. And then once Jose left uh, Cincinnati, and then I later joined them, like, the, when they opened up Salazar's and was part of that team. And that's when, after a year or so of working there, that's when I moved back home. And uh, yeah, like, I've been with him. Then when I came back, when Meters had, yeah, I don't know how, I can't remember how long Meters was open, but yeah, I went over there as a sous chef over at Meters. And I think that's where my ceiling, that's where I think I hit the ceiling. Like, as far as like, all right, this, I can't go any further than that, but I'm ready to grow. I'm ready to move on. Like, and, you know, and challenge myself a little bit more. Like, and so that's when I started taking, like, I took a chef position at, uh, Blinkers and I went and helped out a friend of mine at Commonwealth. And then after Commonwealth, that's when I really started saying, all right, let me start doing my personal chef. And then I started doing like little caterings and pop ups and, and after doing that, that's when I kind of got into Finley and uh, Finley Kitchen. I was in the Finley Launch Program. Like, I was about to have my first restaurant then, like about 2019. But then that changed, like, you know, once COVID hit. And then I was like, back square. And yeah, then some other opportunities came my way um, because, like, I'm a, I'm a really cool guy. So people know me. And also, when they saw I was trying to do my own thing, they looked out for me. And that's when Jimmy Lewis came about. They were doing New Orleans food, like Cowboys, Dumbo. And then like six, seven months into that, that's when I acquired Noia. Once we got Noia, that's when I started putting my 100% into Noia. I blessed my friend with a chef position to run Jimmy Lou's while I started getting Noia together. So during that time, you know, when you're working for Jose Salazar at a couple of places, you know, Cincinnati Inn and then Salazar and Mita's, you kind of mentioned that was when it was like, oh, this is like actually more along the lines of the stuff that you wanted to be cooking to as well and the environment that you wanted to be in. Would you say that that's also the point that kind of opened you up to possibly looking at a future in Cincinnati? I mean, I know you wound up moving back home for a little bit anyways, but did you kind of consider like, yeah, like maybe Cincinnati is like 
where I just wind up, and this is where I'm an open man thing. Honestly, yeah, honestly, because like before then, like I never like considered like Cincinnati my home. I just live here, like you know, that was my thing. And like for a while, it took a, it took a lot for me to like daily. I was comparing like New Orleans, Cincinnati, New Orleans, Cincinnati, like everything that was going on. Like if this was in New Orleans, or or like in New Orleans, we don't do stuff like this. So like you know, it took a while for me to kind of get over that. And I think all that came with me, uh, the way I was placed there. Like, like this wasn't a planned move or a scheduled move. Like, you know, this was almost something that had to happen. And so, like, my whole heart was still at home and I still want to be home. And so when I came back, that's when I was like, all right, I'm here. We got this house. So now I'm not going anywhere, you know. So I might as well just, one, suck it up, two, and, you know, make the best of it and so that's when i kind of like embraced cincinnati as my home and and once i did that i think i think I think that was a lot of weight off my mental shoulders because like instead of me comparing and wanting to be and be home so much because like i don't know what it was like i it's like i was so attached to home for like years like that's where i want to be i thought about home like every single day i would talk to people from new orleans every day in culinary not in culinary like i was always telling somebody from home Anytime I would talk to somebody from home, one, just hearing how they talk, two, hearing what they're doing, or somebody called me and was like, yo, hold on very quick, let me get this code right very quick. And that would just, like, trigger emotions, you know? Because, like, I can't get that here. I can't go get a pobo who do any of those things that they're doing. Oh, man, what you know, I'm getting snowballs for the kids. Like, that's not a thing here, you know? So all the things that made me love my home, and to hear them talk about it or hear one of the chefs and tell them about where they're going out after work and so on and so forth. I was like, like, I didn't want to talk after that. But yeah, once I made it home, it became a little bit easier. You know, I stopped looking back because I know I always go home at any point in my life, like, you know, and experience home, you know, because my mom is there, grandmother's there, like everybody's there. My sister lives in Texas. So like my brother is down there. So I mean, I can always go home. So that's one of the hurdles I had to get over. Once I got over that hurdle, I think everything else came easier because I was stopping myself from moving forward instead of just moving forward. You know, you wind up getting this opportunity with the Finley Kitchen, their launch program, which I think was, you were going to have this nine month kind of residency lease and everything, and you were going to open your own spot which you called, I believe, Category 5 is what you planned on naming it. What was the, the idea behind the concept? Was it going to be kind of what Jimmy Lou's cuisine wound up being, or was it something different? Well, it's going to be a little bit more like like an elevated version of that. Jimmy Lou's is more like takeout, and so uh, Category 5 was going to be more like elevated because, like, one, you can come in, sit down, and eat, and, you know, um, like literally similar concept, but also just take it up a notch. Like we'd have did Oh Boys and we'd have still had the fried chicken Fridays, we'd have had all that. And it was just like uh it was gonna be like an elevated ver a plated version of what Jimmy Lou. Did you get to open it at all? Didn't get to open it. And actually I'm kinda happy I didn't because like the uh, whole concept would have died because we'd have opened during COVID and there was no way we would have survived that. Especially in that area too. I'm assuming the irony isn't lost on you, right? Like you, you're going to open a restaurant named Category 5 and then it gets wiped out by a pandemic. <laughs> I never put that together, but that's good. That's a good thing. But also, like, uh, so 
the reason like category five never came to exist because like they did like this poll like in what do they see when they see this name like category five like the logo and stuff i had nothing nobody ever got food from that or oh that's a restaurant whatever and so like everybody thought it was like like a disaster that was one and also like just a, a messed up time in the uh, in the timeline of, of life you know, nothing resembled food or a restaurant and so that's when i came when we came up with uh, the branding people that i worked with came up with jimmy lose because we talked about my grandmother a lot like during the whole process you know and it was like why not so you wind up opening jimmy lose it's like summer 2021 what led to you kind of going to the oakley kitchen versus a place like you know finley market or something like that you know you're supposed to kind of be in finley market before what made you kind of decide eh, maybe that's not where i want to be well honestly it was someone from finley actually uh, my friend elias who behind like uh eli's barbecue up here and stuff like that um it was literally like three days once we found out that the finley launch program was no he messaged me and he was like look we got this opportunity coming in oakley like you could be like one of the first people we get um he said i know what you do so i know how i know you're gonna have a good product and then like about a month or so later i went met with his team that he had down here putting the thing together said he was trying to bring a food hall like to uh cincinnati and i was already familiar with food hall from just like traveling and also at home we already had like two or three food halls in new orleans already so I was like, all right, I'm I'm game, you know? And also, it was new. It was an area, one, I wasn't, like, uh, familiar with. And also, it was somewhere for me to kind of like, get a new start. Was your kind of idea to test out what the reaction would be to New Orleans-style cuisine and then eventually move from the food hall to, like, a more permanent place? Like, what Noya is, Noya was always, like, the info. And so, like, even when I was in Oakley, like, I always just kept my eyes open because the restaurant I have, even when it was a restaurant before, like I always had my eyes on that place because one, the location, two, like we still in OTR, we're not in the fuss of everybody else. And one, it's not a big restaurant and I never wanted a big restaurant either. So I, I uh, always wanted to do that. But also like, like some people thought that uh, like I was going to take what Jimmy Lou's was and put into Noia and that never was a thought because like, I wasn't going to do that. I wasn't going to do like a New Orleans restaurant there. Because like what I was trying to do like with Jimmy Lou's is just like people know like what real New Orleans food is. And I don't have anything against anybody else who's trying to do New Orleans food. I just know like if you're not from New Orleans, it's kind of hard for you to replicate that. That's really it. Do you think based on your experience, like a, a kitchen incubator, you know, food hall is still a viable path for someone to launch a concept and eventually move into a brick and mortar in a post-covid world yeah because like one um it kind of puts your guidelines and perspectives in order uh, it kind of lets you know the steps you need to take you know and you always get to see what your next step is then without being like rushed or managed by just doing it without the coaching that you get at uh the incubator kitchen a friendly kitchen for me like i had people i can talk to like i can go to amy i can go talk to all the other people that are in uh, the incubator kitchen that are doing things. What are you doing to get your name out there? Like, how are you doing this? And like, who do you go through for this? And so on and so forth. Then you got Finley Market right across the street where you also have people that are successful with their stands and selling food and 
all that type. So, so you have a lot of information and resources right around. And so for you to, to not use that, then I can see you not succeeding in what you're trying to do because you're not using the resources around you. But for me and for me to tell someone like, yeah, I would definitely advise somebody to do that. So I think April, 2022, you open Nolia. How did that opportunity come about? It's the old please space. Basically, I think they did a quick stint uh, in COVID where they closed permanently. But how did you kind of wind up getting that space? Uh, I, I kept my eyes on the prize, honestly. Um, um, long story short, uh, I, saw, I saw a friend of mine that was in there one day as I was passing. I just stopped down, you know, just asked some questions about what was going on, like, you know, like anything happening. Like, nah, like, I'm just, you know, just getting some stuff taken care of and clearing some stuff out. I was like, all right. And, you know, and then, like, that's when I went around the corner to the to the people that was running it, to the landlords. They were telling me, like, oh, there's, like, 10 or 12 people, like, trying to get this restaurant. You know, some of them want to tear walls down, do this and do that. Like, I didn't want to do any of that. And I was just like, what's it going to take for me to get the keys? Like, you know, I ain't worried about in line, I don't care who in line, like what's it gonna take me to get the keys? It was like, you know, went through the whole process, the LOI and all that stuff. And, you know, we um, got paperwork looked at and all that. And it was like, all right, you come with seven thousand, you know, it'll be yours. Like, I'll see you in the morning. That was it. And I got the keys and you know, I never forget when I got the keys, like, you know, when I went in there for myself, because uh, that was like September uh twenty one and uh, I sat down in the restaurant and that's kind of how I saw putting everything together. Just like sat down in that probably for like an hour. Like I didn't move. I didn't get up. I didn't, I didn't go through the kitchen downstairs or anything. I just started like how I want, want to be like what I want to do. So jotting down some ideas and stuff like that. I put it in my notebook and then I walked out, locked the door. And then when I got to Jimmy Lou's the next day and I was just like, I'm not going to say nothing to nobody. Like I'm not saying nothing. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna tell some of my friends that that I'm cool with. Like I just want this to come out of the blue. Once I did, it did get out there. People knew what Jimmy Lose was. So like, so for somebody to find out that Jimmy Lose chef acquired the former police space, once that got out there, you know, that's when I started getting conversations about that. But the only thing I didn't like about getting that spot and putting up saying what I wanted to do there, like. Almost everybody was trying to put please in front of what I was trying to do and trying to, oh, big shoes to fill. You got this. Like, you know, then, you know, you got the please lovers and all that mad that please isn't there, mad that I'm there, not please and so on and so forth. But they don't really know the whole story. And the whole story is not for me to tell. But also, like, it was kind of like, you know, my nerves. Honestly, like, every time I do an interview, they interview me. Then when the article come out, I was like, all this stuff about please and then me. So it's like kind of like dimming the fire of what I'm trying to do. You know, like it's like you're trying to, to me, like how I was saying, it's like, it's like, do they want me to do what I'm trying to do or do they want to keep remembering that please was here? Like, you know, I didn't get that. But also I did get it because like, yeah, please, it wasn't like please was a sleeper restaurant or anything. Please was a great restaurant in this city. But like, it, I was like, all right, please isn't here now. So just let that go. Just let it go. And just like, if you want to talk to me, talk to me about Noia. Don't talk to me about please, you know? And it wasn't no shot at please. It was more like, man, I'm here. The chef that was here is not. 
you know, the, the restaurant that was here is now gone. I'm trying to bring something else. And so once we got over that, and you can see where we are right now. Did you have to do much work to the interior space to kind of make it Nolia? Because, I mean, I know back in the day they did just a crap ton of work to that building to make it into a restaurant. But did you have to do much to kind of, like you were saying, get rid of that association that people would always have? Like, this is the plea space and kind of make it Nolia? I mean, we had to clean it up, of course. It took like three months to clean it up before we was able to get like contractors and stuff in there to kind of go away. Because I didn't take away what that place was. I just made what that place was. That's really it. We didn't do any like construction or anything, major construction. I mean, besides like covering pipes and, you know, stuff like that, making sure the ceiling was sealed, you know, because it looks like chip paint on the ceilings and stuff like that. So we sealed all that, but no major construction, just just normal. Like we took it down, painted it, made it ours, hung some art in there, put a little bit of uh, what we stand for up in there and also hung my grandmother up in that. That was it. And got some really beautiful wallpaper. I never knew wallpaper cost that much in my life. But so we was able to do that. We kind of got rid of the please bathroom as well. Because I know like when we first opened, people were like going to the bathroom like ASAP, like just to see like if it was still the same or what did we do to it, you know? And um, then we started getting like the not please potty host and all that type of stuff. So it was, it was hilarious. But uh, but yeah, I just wanted to take the please out of the place. So the name Nolia comes from Magnolia. So why did you choose that? What's the significance? Magnolia is Louisiana state flower. Nolia sounds like Nola, Nolia. It's still me representing home. You know, that was the whole meaning behind it. I had a ton of other names that was going to be kind of weird and all that type of stuff. But because everybody in the city calls me like, N-O, like New Orleans. They call me N-O or New Orleans or Chef N-O. So I was going to do like some kind of rendition of that at first. And then I was like, nah, that's not <laughs> that's not going to fly. And then like, then you know how you got to say, like, oh, we're going to N-O. Like, no, nah, not. that didn't sound good to me. But also then the branding team was like, why don't we do this? And we did that. And I was like, then also I started thinking like, Nolia, like, all right, so the Nolia is a project uptown. Like I'm from downtown and I'm naming my restaurant after something uptown because like i represent the ninth world that's the third world then i'm like i don't know then i was like then i was like you know what i'm not even in new Orleans. like you know so like why am i considering like you know and, and so that's kind of how the name came about new orleans has several cuisines i mean southern appalachian cajun creole french there's even some spanish some mexican what lane did you choose for the cuisine because you're from new orleans but you could pick any of those lanes to go with so what did you kind of do with your menu and what you wanted to put out there and have people kind of resonate with you and your restaurant? I wanted to change what black restaurants look like when they open up. Like, you know, instead of it being just like a soul food restaurant. In the South, like you were saying, like Appalachian, Haitian, Creole, Cajun. Also, there's Asian, there's Spanish, there's African, there's also Cuban. There's also a flood of other ethnicities and all that in the South. And also, when, when most people think about, like, Southern food, they think about soul food. And nobody plays on those other cultures of food. And so that's what we do at Nolia. We play on those other cultures of food. Now, yeah, I'm from New Orleans, but my restaurant is not New Orleans. So pull on all those other inspirations and not just 
soulful. We try to do beyond that, like because there's more food than just soul food in the South, you know. And so, like that was the lane we chose to do our food. Are the dishes kind of family recipes or things you've developed, you know, and techniques and stuff that you've learned along the way with each restaurant that you worked at? And so if I was doing like family recipes, then that would be like New Orleans for real. Some of the stuff that we're doing, we're stuff that I've gained knowledge and stuff that I've gained along the way, but also some of the nostalgic stuff that I remember when I was coming up. And like, so like if, if me and my friends went to like Atlanta, we went to Florida, like I knew how the food was similar along the way, but started to get different from where I was from. I mean, like even when I went to like Texas, like how different, like the big Spanish influence they have in Texas and so on and so forth. And like when you go to Florida, the, the Cuban, the Haitian, the Jamaican, and, and all those influences that are in Florida and Georgia, like with the red rice and uh, so on and so forth, like all those other different things that most people wouldn't even think about or touch. That's where the inspiration comes from. There's like a line, like we draw, like in our kitchen, like, all right, so this is the stuff that we're never doing. I don't care how many versions you do it or how many versions they have of it. This is stuff we're never doing. This is where we're going to go. And one that keeps us unique, that keeps us different, that keeps the guests on their toes. So like what the next menu is going to look like, what are we going to do for this? Uh, so on and so forth. You know, so like that's what we do. Is there anything you haven't put on the menu yet, but you still want to? Like maybe you didn't put it on there, you know, during the course of your first year because you just weren't sure what the feedback would be like goat or something, for example, you know, like you could find like goat, like in, you know, Costco now, but I still don't think people are super like into goat, but I'm just using that as an example. Can't say that. No, you're my gosh, that dish right there. Um, like, cause most people would only get goat, like through Indian food or something like that, right? Like a goat curry or, or something like that. And so for me, like, I remember my uncle's going to the, country and they'll come back with like a whole goat and they throw the whole goat on the grill and you know like in about 10 hours we were eating goat and stuff like that and so like i remember like because he used to always like he'll pick the meat off the grill and put it on a bun and throw some mustard on it i was like here yeah, try that and i liked it and so and so i knew like goat and mustard goes well together so that's how that whole dish came about so the nostalgia from my uncle giving me a pool goat sandwich with mustard on it sparked the whole goat gnocchi dish that i have in my restaurant right now like the nostalgia of everything that's going on like for us like culinary stuff that's going on in the south that one that i love and also the memories you know of stuff that i grew up with like when i'll never forget when i went to mississippi and got like this red sandwich red meat just like they take these red sausages and chop them up and they put them on a bun. It looks like ground meat and they're like pickles and onions and all that stuff on it. It looks weird. It doesn't look appetizing at all. Like to people who are not from the South, I can tell you that's like what chili looks like to me. You know, the Cincinnati chili looks like to me. And so like in a pig ear sandwich and all that type of that, that's kind of stuff. That's where I, I would draw nostalgia from like stuff like that. Like think about stuff like that. Then how can I make this something that, one people would enjoy, but also some that I uh, I see that people are not doing. Because that's the one thing we do. Because there's, there's like a, probably like four or five ingredients that we probably would never get in our restaurant just because of those ingredients being everywhere. You know, you said you get bored 
a lot of times too with just doing the same thing over and over. So do you change it pretty frequently or do you just shoot for like once a season to do like a complete overhaul? So by the time this episode comes to life, like the menu will be changed. And I actually like about 30 minutes, <laughs> I got to go meet my my uh, sous chef and, and my other cook because we're supposed to be putting the, finishing the spring menu up today. I always want to be ahead of the game. For me, it's not about like being bored, but it's about like, I only can do repetition so long. When you're when you're working out, like, you know, you got like 200 pounds, you only can do 200 pounds so many times a day. You know, after a while, you either want to go up or you want to go underneath where you ought to kind of get whatever strength back or from being hurt or whatever. For me, like, I just want to always evolve and evolve much as possible. Just letting people know, like, the experience you get at nowhere, you're only going to get here. You're not going to go somewhere else and get what you're getting here. Because I remember when I put stewed okra on my first menu, and I can't even tell you how many people that never ate okra, like, still ask about that dish from the first menu. I mean, they had a lady threaten me one time. She wasn't serious, though, by the way. She was just... That's how serious she was about the stewed okra. And she was like, yeah, I will break every window in this restaurant until you bring it back. She said, like, if you take this off the menu, I will break every window. I mean, it's been off the menu, like two two menus now. So, But I haven't brought it back yet. But also, that's one of those things, too, that kind of keeps us nostalgic. Because you like, I don't even want to say it publicly, because that would probably be an assassination. Like, if you go to McDonald's, like, if McDonald's stops selling Big Mac, you're not going to stop going to McDonald's. Because nine times out of ten, you go to McDonald's, you're probably not even getting a Big Mac. Probably going to get a chicken sandwich or something like that. So, like, even like those fan cult favorite, like, you know, when they disappear, it's kind of like how we replace them is what counts. And also, I never was a fan of like, of this stays on the menu just because of what it is. Theoretically, you're really turning up that part of your brain off because you know you don't have to worry about that part. The only thing that stays on the menu that probably won't never change is cornbread. The cornbread is always going to be that. The whole menu can change. Like, the whole menu can change. We don't hold no punches or anything. We just be like, all right, we're doing a whole menu? All right, let's get it. Let's think about how we're doing it. We got a board downstairs in my basement where we drew, like, we got four seasons, and we just write inspirations, ideas, all that, and all those seasons. And when it's time to do a menu, we kind of pull from that. But as of lately, we've been, every day, like, really thinking about doing this i'm really thinking about doing that what you think about this you ever did something like this so you know all that that's where we're at and i'm happy that my staff is inspired and it'll be mad when i get there a little late though but i'm paying so i ain't got to worry about it are you guys able to get most of the ingredients from the area local farms and stuff or do you have to still get stuff from the south not too much from the actual area but like we do have people that source it out for us if that makes sense like, say, for, like, when we're getting goat, we get the goat locally now. We were getting, like, a Spanish goat at first, and now we're getting, like, some goat that is locally. I mean, it's a little bit more on the pretty on the penny, but it's worth it because we're getting it from inside of the state that we're in. And also, we try to, like, for, like, raw bar, we try to get, like, some, um, like, Gulf oysters or southern oysters, but Louisiana and, and Texas and all those uh offshore states take care of themselves first before they take care of anybody else outside of them and as soon as they start releasing some of that that product we will definitely be on that but also we also try to get freshwater fish like from like the gulf or anywhere down there you know we try to get like southern fish not really just like a fish that you can just get anywhere 
But yeah, we try to stay as close to the concept as possible. Try to shy, uh, stray away from that. And you folded Jimmy Lou's into Nolia, right? So like Jimmy Lou's is kind of like the bar area. That's what we call the bar. Yeah, definitely. Because uh, take my great grandmother with me anywhere I go. Because like even when I'm cooking greens, sometimes especially the first time I cook greens up in Nolia, like I can just see her slapping me in the back of my head because like I did something that she wouldn't do. She was a big part of my life, honestly, culinarily and just as a great grandmother as well. Her imprint like meant a lot. Like if she can see this right now, I I can I can quit everything. I can quit everything right now. I would I'll give the keys to Nolia to somebody else. Be done just to see her face, seeing what I've done, especially growing as a chef. She never really got to see me become who I am right now, but also for her to see that would be enough for me. I don't care about accolades or awards or any of that. Well, speaking of awards, a couple of weeks ago, you got nominated for the James Beard Best Chef Great Lakes category. How did you find out? I was in the middle of like, poaching some shrimp for the raw bar, and um, I had just put the shrimp in, and my phone went off. A chef friend of mine named Mitchell Aarons, he uh, mentioned me, and he's like, congratulations on your nomination. And he just sent me like a screenshot, but I, I didn't know what it was about. It just showed like my name amongst like all these other restaurants. It's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, what are you, what are you saying? Like, what, what nomination? Though? And like, how did you know something about my restaurant before I did? So by the time I sent that message back to him, that's when my phone went crazy. Like, I'm talking about getting texts, calls, and all this in like one most, like my phone didn't know how to act at one point. And so like, anytime I would try to look, or when you say, like, your nomination for James Beard, and I was like, nah, dude. Like, so anytime I'm looking, trying to look up James Beard to make sure everything's what it is, my phone kept, I kept getting messages, I kept getting calls, I kept somebody kept interrupting. And so, like, I remember just looking at the page, and I just shared it to my wife. And I was like, can you look at this and tell me what this is? Like, you know? And when my wife sent those few cuss words back to me, then I was like, I had to pause for a little bit. Like, I really, like, I, I did not expect that. I wasn't expecting it. I mean, I thought, like, maybe, like, further down the line, you know, but not 10 months in. And so I was just like, okay. I enjoyed the moment. Called my mom, and my grandmother was over there at the same time. So I hear my mom and my grandmother cry at the same time. I shed a tear. By this time, like, I told uh, my cooks and stuff that was here that we had a real awesome pre-shift, letting everybody know, like, look, we got a lot more eyes on us now. Like, yeah, we can relish in this moment today, but like also like, let's not take our eyes off the prize. Honestly, like it's been a hell of a ride since then. We have been like way busier than normal. We've increased staff a little bit, but also uh, it's been awesome. And I'm happy that what's going on with us was being recognized. This was also a goal, you know? And like for me, like beyond just, the James Beard thing, all I wanted to do was just be the first black chef to be number one in Cincinnati. To be nominated for James Beard, that was like, that wasn't even a thought right now. I mean, before it happened, I'm grateful. Skyline Chili. No? No. It's a unique thing. I'm not a fan either, but there's there are people that love it, and it's it's a very unique thing. My wife, the day before I moved back to New Orleans, because she came like about a month after I moved, our last day here before I left, she took me to Skyline to to try to enjoy the chili. And uh, she got me a, a kid version, like the kid size one, but she didn't know how I was going to receive this. But that first bite of the Skyline chili, like I, it took, it took everything in me to swallow that. And she can tell too. She can tell. It's like, 
you don't like it, don't you? And I was like, nah, I don't. But that was the thing, man. Like their thing here. Um, they, they they got their little uh, competition with Gold Star and Camp Washington and the other places and, and stuff. But like that chili is just not me. I'm from the south, so we like Southwest chili, like with meat and vegetables and beans and all that type of stuff. Not just thin, cinnamon, chocolatey tasting sauce with cheese and onions on top. That's just not how it goes. Have you got your muscle car yet? Uh, right now, I got the 2019 uh, Charger RT. That's what I'm got right now. That's one goal scratched off. The next one is uh, probably an SUV for the family. You're a self-proclaimed fried chicken fanatic. What's the best place in Cincinnati to get it if you're not making it yourself? Ooh. All right, people go sleep on this, but Roosters, man, on Glenwood. But like for me, though, like it's everything. Like you know, you got to be the the chicken, the crust, everything has to kind of go together. When you see other restaurants in the Midwest, in the Northeast, whatever, that do kind of Southern comfort food, New Orleans style cuisine, what's like the biggest mistake that you notice right away with what they're doing? With like one's not an authentic, you know, representation. Well, the one thing that I can say is that you can tell that like if you fall in love with New Orleans cuisine and then be like, all right, I want to turn my idea into my love for New Orleans cuisine into a restaurant. But the thing that they're missing is like the soul of the city. Is it easy? Like if like if I show you like how to make jambalaya, something like that, right? I'm gonna show you jambalaya how I make it. You can take all the notes down that, that you want. But even when you go home and do it yourself, somehow it's going to come out different. Not saying that it's going to be bad. It's going to come out different. But the thing is, it's like, I don't think you can say you're authentic if you're not from it, if that makes sense. Like, I could never say, like, I do uh, authentic Skyline chili, and I'm not from here, and I don't eat the chili either. So, you know what I'm saying? So that could be a little bit disheartening for some people, you know, because I'm going to do something different than what everybody else has been doing. That's uh, important to me. But I think being honest, I think like, you know, you could say you're doing like Southern food, Southern flair or anything, but don't, I don't, I wouldn't say I'm authentic if I'm not from. What's next for you professionally? I mean, obviously you got Nolia, but anything else on the horizon or just kind of focused on the restaurant? Nah, man, just focus on the restaurant, man. Trying to keep putting out good food and not let the fire that's inside of me die, man, honestly, you know? It's like I always wanted to do what I'm doing and wanted to be living out my dream. I want to live it to the fullest. Like, I I mean, like, yeah, we got nominated for an award, but like, it doesn't stop that for me. Like, I just want to keep putting out good food and also letting people, introducing people to culture, honestly, up here. A lot of heritage up here. There's not too much culture. So I want to bring some of that up here. So this next question comes from our previous guest in the podcast, Chef Ann Walker of 1808 American Bistro up here in Delaware, Ohio. You left behind for you. If you had to stop working in the industry right now, what other profession would you pick up with your current set of skills? Fashion. I probably would do some culinary fashion or some sort of like fashion. Fashion or music, either one of those. Because this is just me talking, but I'm probably like the best dressed fat guy up here. <laughs> but also, like I love music too. Like music is sets my mood for the day. Like, you know, like, like, I know, like, when I get in my car, what I'm going to listen to when I get in my car and what I'm listening to and where that's going to put me. I also like the wordplay of, like, the music I listen to. Lyrics mean a lot to me. Like, so, but also if I was going to do, like, fashion, like, it would probably be, like, some sort of culinary fashion. 
whether it being like because most chefs don't really wear uh most chefs don't um, really wear like chef coats anymore and stuff like that they kind of dress kind of how they want but like i would develop a line that kind of coincides with how most chefs now dress you know some hats shoes shirts so on and so forth pants what's the question you want to leave behind for the next guest can be anything was there ever a dish your favorite dish that you ever ate is that something you'll put on your menu so a dish that didn't come from you your favorite dish that didn't come from you is that something you'll ever put on your menu next question comes from one of our listeners they wrote in is old bay overrated underrated or properly rated underrated if, if that makes sense because like some people don't know what it is some people don't know how to use it some people don't understand it but from where i'm from we use crab oil instead of like old bay so in my opinion like crab oil is a little bit more underrated than old bay because most people with old bay and crab oil are the same things and they're not so last set of questions here we asked everybody who comes on the podcast so kind of rapid fire nice compare and contrast across the episodes who would you say is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far when you look back on it? Uh, my great-grandmother, man. My great-grandmother, Jimmy Lou. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? Markers. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own? Persons in Cincinnati gets stuck at the airport, flight gets canceled, they reach out to you. You guys are closed. They're like, hey, where should we go eat? You point them in this direction. Go to Mid-City. Bucket list travel destination and bucket list restaurant. So any place you haven't... Uh, travel to that you still want to visit and then any place you have not eaten at but you still want to dine out one day honestly like I, I like pasta and like i'm real stickler about like pasta but like anywhere in italy uh, no matter what region or anything and i just want to just go to one of the any i'm pretty i'm pretty sure that's probably all i'm gonna eat over there and drink coffee but uh anywhere in italy and just eat pasta like there like just kind of see the difference or similarities that, you know, like what we're doing over here compared to how they do it over there. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? I just told somebody this. So when I moved back home to New Orleans and I'm expediting, I was a chef at the quarter system. This dude uh, I knew from the neighborhood was working on the line. We were, we were getting busy too. So he was helping out like the person in the middle that was working like the plants and stuff like that. He was walking to him to go help out the gun fell out of his waist and bounced probably like three or four times on a rubber mat that was they were walking on everybody who saw that duck he picked it up like nothing happened and put it right back i was like dude for real like this what, like we couldn't stop the flow of the food coming out as soon as all that food went out that was it. let's go outside that was the most insane thing but also that lets me know it's like all right i know i'm back at home now Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, fast food, candy, whatever, that you know is super unhealthy, but you just can't help yourself? Nothing beats a good burger, bro. Nothing. Nothing. If you got a good burger, then it's like top 10. Burger. I'm always in the mood for a good burger. Nobody's cooking. If I got to pick up something, I want a good burger. What's the one cookbook everyone should own? Professional chef, home chef, doesn't matter. You think everybody should have this cookbook? Black Power Kitchen by Ghetto Gastro. Favorite dish thing you've ever cooked, created, you know, looking back on your career, you can almost point to this as like your aha moment. You knew you could be a professional chef one day after you made this. I would say like jambalaya because there's so many different versions of it. One, to get the approval of my mom for making it. That was it. Like, oh, boy, this is good. You know what you're doing, huh? Like, that was it. 
I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is or was. Uh, if you were, is there a moment, episode, scene about him that stands out to you? If you weren't, is there anybody else who was a culinary personality that you kind of gravitated towards? Definitely an Anthony Bourdain thing. Nothing specific that stands out, but like just the way he looked at the industry. He see the industry when he worked in it, you know, and so he had a, the same insights as everybody else. And we all try to strive for something like, you know, to be able to be that honest because uh, you can't really be that honest because most people get offended or think things are supposed to only be a certain way. Don't look at it for everything that it, that it is right now. You always want to see it change. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. Like if you want to see my boring Instagram life, you can go to at Jeff Chefs. I think I said like everything uh, at Noia Cincinnati, Noia Kitchen on Facebook. Yeah, and you guys are open uh, during the week. Tuesday through Saturday, 5 to 9, uh, Tuesday through Thursday, and 5 to 10 on uh, Friday and Saturday. You can make reservations through the website, but... Open table as well. There's nothing like it in Cincinnati. Super unique. I can't wait to try it. We'll be back down there soon, stopping in uh, to try it firsthand since uh, we didn't get, unfortunately, uh, with the issue with the Airbnb, we weren't able to. But it's awesome to see just kind of something different pop up and you being able to have success in that space too as well with you know everything that came before. So congratulations on all that and stay in touch. All right, man. Thank you, guys. A big thanks again to Jeff for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his day to jump on, chat about his career, you know, being in New Orleans, going through Katrina, how he wound up in Cincinnati, opening the restaurant, you know, different concepts too, what it's been like to kind of take over a space that was formerly the home of the best restaurant in the city and one that was loved and beloved by a lot of people too as well. So that's always a challenge and it's always an interesting tidbit when that happens for someone too as well, how they kind of navigate that and what they got going on and James Beard Award at the time nomination and now he's a finalist. So pulling for him and, you know, the Nolia team and everything because we only had one nomination here in Columbus, I think this year, but a couple in Cleveland too as well. So we're just kind of pulling for all the Ohio people and we'll see kind of what happens here in uh, about a month or so. But Again, you can follow him on Instagram at Jeff Chefs, also at Nolia Kitchen. Follow us too as well at Spoon Mob. Check out the website, spoonmob.com. Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform that you get your podcast. New episodes drop on Thursdays, 1 a.m. Mini update episodes drop Tuesdays, 1 a.m. The episodes will hit YouTube, our YouTube channel, a week later after they come out and debut on the podcast apps. Appreciate everybody listening. If you're new, welcome. If you've been here for a while, thank you for your continued support and continuing to help spread the word and increase awareness and listenership. You know, can't thank you guys enough. So growing, it's going great. We've had people reach out that want to come on the podcast too as well. So that's always awesome to, you know, get those emails and get that correspondence like, hey, you know, if you'd ever like to talk to somebody doing XYZ, you know, We'd love to come on. And, and we have a few of those episodes coming up too as well that I'm excited for you guys to hear. And they're people that are doing really cool things or have had really interesting stories uh, that they have to share. So uh, super excited about that stuff. And we always have, you know, our local kind of collection of people in Columbus, but, you know, we're not a Columbus, Ohio only podcast or anything like that. You know, we have people on from different places. I've had a couple international episodes with Marcin, who's actually working in Paris. And then we have Dave Pint um, over in Singapore. And, you know, we've had some people from Canada, people out on the West Coast and San Francisco and LA and 
New York and all this stuff too as well. So super excited to continue to be able to have people that we find interesting that are doing delicious food and have unique restaurant concepts, having you guys hear those episodes. So continue to help spread the word. You wind up at one of these restaurants, just let them know that you heard their episode, their interview on the Spoon Mob podcast. Uh, that always helps, you know, continue to spread the word and kind of reinforce that, you know, they made a great choice in coming on the podcast and agreeing to do it, that people have heard it, and uh, it continues to kind of reach the people that they want to reach uh, to as well. New episode next week on Thursday. No mini update next week, but there'll be one the week after. So you guys got a week to catch up on the back catalog and everything if there's an episode you missed or you're running behind. And uh, we will talk to you guys next week on Thursday.